Tēnā koutou no mai, hi to mai, welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tang. Today, Dr Ashley Bloomfield, his biggest regret from the COVID response and the reason New Zealand's vaccine rollout was delayed. We needed to make sure that we had all the elements mm. that were needed to be able to play the long game on the vaccination programme and to get it rolled out successfully. The Reserve Bank's new chief economist will tell us why he reckons property investments are no longer safe as houses. And the curious case of the Deep South's mayoral race. What's your relationship like with Tim Shadbrook? Uh, it's terrible. Yeah, it really is. Before we get to all of that though, the Green Party delegates have voted to reopen nomination for James Shaw's leadership position. 32 delegates at the AGM voted to open nominations, while 75 supported Shaw. It means any party member who might want to take over the co-leadership position can put their name forward this week. James Shaw has indicated he is likely to stand for the co-leadership position again. I've still got 70% of the delegates supporting me, um, and I've had quite a lot of supportive messages, you know, in the kind of very brief time that the news has been out. Um, but I do want to take some soundings. We asked him to come on the show this morning, but a party spokesperson said Shaw was spending time with family. Chloe Swarbrick, who some have picked as a potential co-leader, didn't respond to our contact. We are at the end of the second to last week of July. Unremarkable, maybe, except for us on Q&A, it marked a grim case of deja vu. Tēnā koutou no mai, hi to mai. Welcome to Q&A. I'm Jack Tame. Q&A makes 41 shows every year. That's about 160 interviews, depending on how disciplined or otherwise the host is with his timing. Last question then, is the Civil War over? <laughs> and every now and then there is a little moment in an interview that stands out. Tēnā welcome to the show, Sam. Last year we interviewed Niwa's principal climate scientist after a series of catastrophic weather events. China had recorded a once-in-millennium rainstorm which drowned people in an underground train. Siberia burned in wildfires, while in Norway, right near the Arctic Circle, the temperature hit 34 degrees. Why do you get scared? We're doing a crazy thing. The, the rate of change on the planet right now is... is way more rapid than anything in human history. Our existence, evolution, and has not prepared us for this time. Well, would you believe that interview was exactly one year ago? This same exact Sunday last year. This week, though, instead of Siberia, it was Spain's turn to burn in wildfires. In China, instead of Henan province, it was the turn of Sichuan and Gansu to drown in record rainfall. Instead of Norway and the Arctic Circle, grey, drizzly, dreary-ass London wilted in a heatwave that melted airport runways. Despite the myriad catastrophes, there's good reason to be even more pessimistic about the state of the climate than this time last year. As president of one of the world's biggest emitters, Joe Biden's climate plans have just been scuppered by the US Congress. The EU has voted to categorise natural gas as a clean energy, while Russia's invasion of Ukraine threatens the global energy transition. So, exactly a year since we last spoke, I went back to NIWA's principal climate scientist, Dr Sam Dean, and asked what this week's weather events tell us about the changing climate. Well, it's just a part of a big 
picture that's growing ever larger, isn't it? An ever greater weight of evidence that we all have to confront. It's, I guess it's that time of year where the earth is tilted on its side and the northern hemisphere is getting the maximum sunshine and we're getting the, the minimum, but we're, getting, we're in our wet season, we're getting our heavy rain, you know, this is when we had our floods last year. And the, the heat in the northern hemisphere, yeah, the, the heat waves that, that's, that's striking Europe in particular are fairly dramatic. Do people appreciate how much climate change is going to cost us? Uh, no, I, I don't think they do. We've got a good research program at the moment called Whakahura, led by Victoria University, that's looking at the costs of climate change. And we're looking at how that costs are going to increase in the future. So that, and that provides a motivation for spending money now to mitigate against the potential damages and costs and social and financial costs that we're going to face in the future if climate change continues the way we're going. I feel like I spend a lot of time talking to people over 20, 30 years now about convincing people that climate change is something that we need to be concerned about. And I think people out there really understand the, that climate change is real and that we need to do something. And I think there's a real will to see something happen. But I think we do then come up against, when, when it's actually a question of implementing change, of, of of following through on policies or personal decisions, we come up against that cost problem. And there is never going to be a better time than now to tackle this problem, to recognise that this is a priority as well as other things, and that we, we have to lift that, that priority and, and recognise that we're going to need to spend big money, like COVID scale money, to transition our economy. There's that question of who pays, you know, is government going to pay as, as are businesses going to pay, are people going to pay, and it's probably going to have to be a mix of all three, mm -hmm. but we, we, we need to, to recognise that and, and face that challenge um, head on, and I think maybe there's a bit of a reluctance. We reached a special milestone this month, actually. Um, I was quite struck by it, that the amount of CO2, carbon dioxide, uh, that's in the atmosphere now, that blanket mm -hmm. that keeps the atmosphere warm, um, is 50% higher than it was in 1840. So it's, it, it was this much, it's now that much sitting on top of us, heating us up. And that's, that heat is a massive imbalance, like it's constantly warming the planet right now. Mm. And the only reason we don't feel it, a lot of it's going into the ocean, a lot of it's a problem that's being hidden for many years to come. Mm. That, that, that whole system is going to take a thousand years to adjust to what we have done. So we, we're going to get change. Uh, unless we can actually take the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere that we've already put in there, not only do we need to stop emitting, we need to be thinking about how we're going to bring it down, because otherwise the, the planet is going to keep changing for a long time. There's been millions of years since CO2 was this high, and when it was, seas were five, five metres higher, um, temperatures were, were like three degrees warmer, four degrees warmer, like it was, it was this pretty different world then. And that's, that's, the, that's the consequence we face at the moment. And, and what does that mean in a New Zealand context? Because we think of the wild weather of this week, for example, you know, Wellington has a big storm, strong winds, floodwaters, et cetera. But it isn't just the flooding that you are concerned about. You, you, you are modelling for a future in New Zealand where we face serious risk from wildfires. That's right. I, we don't have a great big continent like in Europe that, that the heat comes over from the continent, though we have Australia. Um, but we have hit 42 degrees, that's our record temperature in the east of the country. 
And we have done some recent work looking at how fire risk changes in New Zealand with these heat waves. And it, it, some of it's really quite scary in terms of the potential in the future for us to have the kind of Australian fire risk conditions in terms of temperature and humidity and dryness that would allow certain parts of the country, the east of the South Island and uh, central Otago in particular, to have these um, sort of Black Friday kind of events of, of fire risk like we've seen in, in Australia. And I would, I would say also that the, the fires that we're seeing in Europe at the moment uh, will turn out, I think, to be exceptional, to see that much fire, fires over such a wide area in Africa and in Europe. At the same time, I think that will turn out to be quite record-breaking. Mm. It's, it's really quite extraordinary to think how fire starts to become a dominant can become a very significant dominant process in ecosystems and I, I, I think for all of us fire is a scary thing that can be truly destructive and terrifying and the, the, the risk of that kind of fire in, in places that we live is, is going to increase if we don't, if we don't mitigate and, and in fact bring CO2 back down from where it is now. 1.5 degrees isn't going to happen, is it? We're, we're certainly not on target at the moment stay below 1.5 degrees. Personally, I think we probably, that's already gonna be really hard to achieve 1.5. Um, I, I think we, we have a good shot at staying under two, um, and that, that's, that's still feasible, and I think if, with current commitments under the Paris Agreement, we'd go just over two. So if, if everybody manages to meet their commitments to the Paris Agreement, then, then we'll go close, and we can hopefully do a bit better than that. But yeah, that 1.5 is, you know, we're at 1.1 now and rapidly increasing. We've only got 10 or 20 years to avoid, uh, 20 years to avoid going over 1.5. Um, I think most times when we talk about staying below 1.5, we mean in reality we're going to go over it and try and come back down. That's, that's sort of the, the most likely way of staying under 1.5 at the moment. Um, that's how serious that the situation is, I would say. Since we last spoke, New Zealand has released its emissions reduction plan. I know there are probably some limits on what you can and can't say, but domestically, are we acting with the urgency that you think the crisis requires? Uh, I think we have really good intentions. I think the Climate Commission's put forward a really good plan, um, and I think the government's uh, accepted those recommendations. I, I think the the proof will be in the pudding to see that we can um, actually you know, implement the policies that, that we're proposing and that we can follow through and you know, we're going to need a lot more uh, electricity generation to, to, to make this renewable revolution work um, and that's, that's a good thing for the government to be focusing on. Of course, I'm going to say it's not happening fast enough. Uh, you know, we need to be, we need to be as, as move as quickly as we can and as and you know, I, I hope we can. I, I think we, you know, we, we've got to have faith in the goodness of everybody's intentions here that we all do want to make a difference. And we've just got to keep reminding ourselves about, about how hard it is and, and just keeping ourselves on task. A big philosophical question to finish then. You have been focused on this area for a couple of decades now. Have you seen anything that gives you faith we have the capacity as a species to solve this crisis? That's a good question. Uh, I certainly, I've been giving a talk recently where I was looking back at uh, what, we've, um, what, we've, what we've done, uh, the, the 
we've been measuring CO2 here at Niwa since 1970, and it's still increasing at the same ever-increasing rate. But um, we have seen quite a lot of policy change. I think we've really started to ramp up the change in policies and um, people's attitudes have changed completely. Like, you know, it was a real battle. We used to battle climate sceptics. We, we don't do that anymore. If I stop and think about really, I mean, I have to deal with this every day, thinking about climate change and where we're going. And if I stop and think about, you know, what could happen, I, I do get upset, you know, I, I get anxious. Um, it's, it's not, so I have to sort of step back from that and, and try and focus on what we can, can do, and I think that's what we all have to do, is just not worry too much about what's going to happen, but put our energies into, into making some of these changes that we're going to need, and, and supporting those who are trying to make those changes. That is NEWA's Principal Climate Scientist, Dr Sam Dean. After the break on Q&A, I ask Ashley Bloomfield if he ever became too politicised during the COVID response. Dr Ashley Bloomfield is done. Four years since beginning in the role, this Friday is his last as the Director General of Health. And as the public face of the COVID-19 response, Ashley Bloomfield went from high-ranking but little-known public servant to a household name. And I asked him what part of the COVID response makes him proudest. Well, the thing I'm proudest of is uh, what we managed to achieve through our vaccination programme. Um, that was critical to us being able to move from our elimination approach to being able to open up as a, as a country knowing we had protected our population, particularly our most vulnerable people. And then it was a, it was a cornerstone of being able to open up safely. And the fact that we were, through a huge effort, able to vaccinate over 90% of our population, particularly of our most vulnerable groups, get that double vaccination uh, level quite, quite so high, I think is an incredible achievement and really was then, uh, did set us up for being able to open up safely. And looking back over the last two years, what is the one thing you wish you could have done differently? Well, I'll preface this by saying, you know, very early on in March 2020, I was very influenced by comments from Dr Mike Ryan from the WHO, who said, uh, move fast, have no regrets. The biggest, the biggest um, problem and the biggest error is, is the failure to make a decision and do something. So I guess we, we did move fast um, and not everything went uh, as perfectly as it might have. Uh, but our, our intent was of course to protect yeah. our population. Uh, so I don't have regrets per se. What I would say is, um, are there things that I wish we'd done differently at the time? Of course, it's always, it's always possible to look back with, uh, with that 2020 hindsight. I think one of the things is um, the extent to which we, had, we engaged communities in helping to shape and inform the response right from early on. I think we, what we did well was communicate what we were doing very well and people were reassured by that. But I think particularly our Māori, our Pacific, our disabled communities, to get them really involved and understand better what their needs were so that when we got those outbreaks, particularly in South Auckland, which is when, where they tended to focus, mm -hmm. and when we started our vaccination campaign, we had a much better understanding of what their needs were 
and how to respond to those. Yeah, I might pick up on that with a few different elements of the response. So on September 20th of last year, when the Prime Minister moved Auckland to level three, at the time, the move was justified by pointing to our increasing vaccination rates. And I think your quote from that press conference was, the difference this time is that it's level three with high and increasing rates of vaccination. But what wasn't mentioned in that press conference was that Māori vaccination rates were 26 percentage points behind those of the general population at the time. Do you accept that the decision to begin relaxing those COVID restrictions at that time disproportionately put Māori at risk? It could have, except there was some, you know, there was more information behind that. And one of which is that actually our vaccination rates for uh, our most vulnerable Māori, in particular over 65s, but even down to over 55s, mm. were equivalent to or even higher at that point for not, than they were for non-Māori. So one of the things about the vaccination campaign that's not necessarily been aired is that early on, particularly through May, June and early July, there was a real focus on getting our older Māori and Pacific vaccinated, and they had higher rates. And non-Māori, non-Pacific rates didn't catch up until mid-July and onwards. Um, and what, but what also was apparent was that for younger Māori, mm. uh, much more work had to go into building trust, their trust in the system, their trust in the vaccine, and that required a substantial investment of both funding and time. And that did happen, and we saw that come up in some of the events, like the Vaxathon, mm. uh, contributed to that. So, yes, that potentially put some of our vulnerable communities at risk, but what we did know is that we had high rates amongst the mo most vulnerable, particularly our older members of our both, both our Māori and Pacifica community. You didn't spend a lot of time in South Auckland, and then, of course, the Ministry went to court to try and protect uh, health data regarding Māori who weren't vaccinated in the latter stages of the vaccination campaign. Could you and the Ministry of Health done better for Māori? Well, uh, the system uh, has got major challenges in, what it, in how it delivers for Māori, not just mm. through the pandemic and through the vaccination campaign. And I think this is one of the things that's a big lesson from COVID-19 is the pandemic has highlighted and really accentuated our most, most vulnerable communities mm. and the communities where the healthcare system doesn't deliver and doesn't reach right. as it should. And uh, it's, it's our Māori and Pacifica communities, our disabled communities, our homeless people and our people who are in quite perilous mm. housing circumstances. And these were the groups when there was an outbreak who were the most affected. What I would say though is of course, yes, I'm Wellington based and that was where a lot of my focus was and had to be. But we were on uh, the, the, a call every morning at nine o'clock with our district health boards around the country, and in particular with our colleagues in South Auckland. Mm. Uh, I was also participating in, uh, as we all got used to, uh, Zoom uh, meetings, Zoom hui, with uh, Māori, Pacific and other communities around the motu to make sure we were hearing what the issues were and indeed what they needed us to hear so that we could uh, improve our responsiveness to those communities. Could the way the MIQ system functioned have been more compassionate? Well, MIQ was a really challenging venture. There's no doubt about this. It was absolutely fundamental to our success with an elimination approach for so long. Uh, and we weren't unique in having that system. Uh, both MIQ and also the lockdowns, which we had uh, at various points in our elimination approach, 
created situations for whānau, for communities that were really challenging, not able to um, visit or spend time with uh, terminally ill mm. friends or relatives, dying loved ones, go to funerals or tangihanga. In fact, those couldn't even be held. So I think some of those issues that felt like a lack of compassion or that were real personal challenges for individuals in whānau and MIQ were replicated across our community, especially during those lockdown mm. periods. Uh, what I also know is from the feedback I've had from many people is that the professionalism and indeed the personal mm. um, uh, re uh, respect and compassion that people inside MOQ received from the staff working there was unparalleled and I think really uh, something for us to, to acknowledge and celebrate. And of course, if there is an, uh, a time when we have to do this again, we will have learnt a great deal about how we could do it better. Do you think the lottery system was compassionate? Well, the lottery system was designed to make it fairer mm -hmm. because we, and it was a response to a set of circumstances. I think we all knew where. I suppose fear and compassion are different, aren't yeah, they? We're, we're, yeah, we're missing out. Uh, and of course, the, the reviews that have been done of that lottery system have suggested that it could have had elements to it that could have enabled. Mm. Uh, there were always, of course, opportunities for people to seek compassionate exemptions. And those, that system operated and there were teams mm. of people reviewing those exemptions and many, many were granted. I think the issue about the lottery system was, in particular, if people missed out repeatedly, every time they went in, it was as if they were a new, uh, it, was, it was the first time doing it. And that, I think, was the, the issue that the, mm. the judgment picked up on. Leading up to the Delta outbreak, New Zealand was sitting at about 120th in the world for the vaccine rollout in terms of percentage of people with at least one dose. And of course now, our vaccination rates are very good. But there are many who perhaps feel that we haven't had an entirely honest explanation as to why New Zealand's vaccination rates in the first part of our vaccination program lagged behind many comparable countries. So aside from the decision to go with Pfizer and Pfizer alone, why did New Zealand lag behind so many other countries? Well, um, I, you know, I'm looking forward to the opportunity to, to actually have that written up and to talk about it and, um, and to just explain why we were in that position. But a key one here is, and I think it's important to put on the table, is we are A, a small country, and B, we're right, uh, right at the bottom of the world. And we, were, we had done an excellent job, our team here, of negotiating advanced purchase agreements with four um, vaccine manufacturers, and we made the decision right back in February to go with a Pfizer-based program. And that's one decision, you know, or one bit of advice I have no regrets about. I think it was absolutely the right advice. But there were constraints on how much we could receive because at that time there was huge global demand. And as you might expect, Pfizer prioritised both bigger countries, but also those countries that had significant outbreaks where, where people were dying because of the lack of a vaccine. We were in an elimination uh, approach and so we weren't in the same circumstances. So there was that aspect to it. But the second was we needed to make sure that we had all the elements mm. that were needed to be able to play the long game on the vaccination program and to get it rolled out successfully, which as you said we did end up being able to do. And many of the information systems that were required to do that simply weren't in place and they were built incredibly quickly and improved as we went. 
uh, to enable what was ultimately a successful program that reached. And interestingly, and I've just yeah. saw some data on this last week, over 100,000 people who hadn't previously had any contact with the health yeah. system and are now linked into the healthcare system. You were leaving this position as New Zealand's in the midst of a significant COVID second wave. Why is our health system now under such strain? Well, uh, having been a, uh, both a clinician at the coalface and also a district health board chief executive before coming into this role, uh, I've got good insight into how winter is always a real challenge for our health system. And every year the health system does a lot of planning for that. And we did even more planning than usual uh, this year. But uh, not surprisingly, and as we, as we imagined, there was this, uh, this double whammy of flu, uh, which we hadn't had really for a couple of years because of, of uh, the borders being closed. And we saw a big outbreak of that first. Mm. Uh, there's a second reason, and that is often our healthcare staff have tended to come to work even when they weren't well. And of course, with COVID, they, like everybody else, uh, are required to isolate. And also, we've changed our frame of reference now. We expect, and as we should, we, we should enable uh, our employees in the healthcare system to be able to stay at home if they're unwell. Mm. But the third thing is, and this just reflects the rest of New Zealand, our healthcare workforce is tired. And you know, two and a half years of a pandemic and responding to that uh, has, has really worn them out. And so, of course, that's playing into mm. what the pressure we've, that system's facing this, uh, this winter as well. So it's a, it's a bit of a perfect storm of, of factors. We had planned for it, but of course, when you're in the middle of it, it's, it's really, really tough. For the best part of two years, we were told that the science would guide our response and that health concerns and concerns around public health would guide our response. Obviously that has changed over the last six months. There was a point when all of your advice was effectively uh, moved on by the government. How has it been for you to go through that transition where the absolute interests of public health no longer define our response? Well, just two comments there. First of all, even when our, we were giving our public health advice, advice right from the start of the pandemic, that was not the only consideration. So it wasn't sort of an absolute rule over everything else. Of course, it was the main driver and it did inform the response to a, a great degree. I would argue that, second point, it still does. So uh, the fact of our uh, ongoing uh, focus on vaccination campaigns uh, widening the criteria for eligibility for flu vaccine mm. as well as our implementation of the fourth dose. Uh, still legal requirement to wear masks in a number of settings. Um, Double-digit deaths every day. The, the requirements to, um, uh, as well for people to still isolate, which is not one in most countries mm. around the world. And yes, double-digit deaths every day. Um, and that's something, that of course, uh, is, is a real driver of our ongoing advice. However, what we also need to understand is not just the number of deaths, but have we got excess deaths happening in the country as a result of COVID-19 now, given that we had two mm. years of actually lower deaths mm. than um, you would envisage? And for a, sh a period of a couple of months through March, we had some uh, March, April, we had excess deaths in our over 80s, and mostly that was mm. in over 90s. But we're not seeing that uh, now, and we're not seeing excess deaths across our other age groups. So that provides us with some assurance that um, there, we're not uh, really missing the mark with our response. Have you felt that at any time over the last couple of years you have been unnecessarily politicised? 
Well, the public sector operates very close to the political interface at all times anyway. And of course, in something that's so big as a pandemic, the, uh, the response has got a political dimension to it. And I was very clearly uh, a visible part of that response. I haven't felt unfairly or unnecessary uh, politicised as an individual, but of course, being in the spotlight, I've also been uh, been subject to um, a very uh, careful interrogation by both the media and politicians of my advice, and that's part of accountability in our democratic system. And I accept that, and I, you know, yeah, I accept that goes with the role. At any point, did you feel like? you and the government were perceived as being too close? Uh, I didn't uh, feel that. I, I think that uh, the government includes both the executive uh, that is ruling as well as the public sector. And mm -hmm. I think one of the strengths of our public sector is that it's an independent public sector. It's apolitical. I've worked really hard to continue to tread that line, even in, in a response that's had such public visibility. And one of the things I'm, I'm, uh, I also am quite proud of is the increase in, and really celebrate is the increase in the public's trust in the public sector over the last two years, not just the Ministry of Health, but right across the you public sector. You think it's sector. increased? Yeah. Yes, and we've just seen the latest results of that. So it went from around 50% of people um, trusting the public sector mm. up to 69%. In 2020, it's levelled out now at about 62%. So quite a significant increase. And I think people wouldn't, people's trust wouldn't have increased to that degree if they felt that my role and indeed the role of the public service had been politicised. Final question. What has been the biggest lesson about human nature? Oh, uh, the biggest lesson for me, and there are many, but one is how, um, how hopeful uh, 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 we can be in people's goodness and uh, their willingness to do things for other people. I call that kindness. It's doing things for others without any expectation of reciprocity. We've seen this time and time again, and we saw this in the first lockdown. People did what was asked of them to protect each other. And we, we, did, we did that to such an extent that actually, rather than just sort of flatten the curve, we eliminated the virus because people uh, did uh, thing, things for each other. And I think that was just a huge, uh, a huge achievement and something to really celebrate. So even now when it feels hard and people think they don't want to wear masks anymore, many still are. And I think we should look back to that time in 2020 when as a country, we acted collectively to look after each other, but in particular to protect our most vulnerable groups and did that very successfully. Dr Ashley Bloomfield, if you want to contact the Q&A team, please call it or my. These are our main platforms. You can email us or find us on Twitter or Facebook. After the break, Tim Shadbolt on why, despite all the criticisms, he's running for mayor again. I just don't want to see if the level of bullying that I've faced uh, continue. Kia ora te welcome back. Is time up for Sir Tim Shadbolt? New Zealand's longest running mayor has been under pressure this term over concerns he's no longer fit to lead in Vicargal. Fina Owen went to meet the wide range of challenges, hoping to take his place. On arrival in Invercargill this week, yet another council squabble was playing out. You have milk? Uh, milk and one sugar, please. 
the Mayor, Sir Tim Shadbolt, slamming his deputy for the decision not to fund a rental car to get him from Wellington to the local government conference in Palmerston North. Why do you think that they've said you can't have a rental car? I just think it's pure jealousy. They, all the people who have opposed me in these elite, forthcoming elections are um, running for the mayoralty. Nobby, what's your real name? Oh, my real name is William Stewart. William? Oh, yeah. Well, I might stick with Nobby. You will stick with Nobby, yeah, stick because with everybody Nobby. knows me as Nobby. Deputy Mayor Nobby Clark is standing against New Zealand's longest-serving mayor. What's your relationship like with Tim Shadbolt? Uh, it's terrible. Yeah, it, it really is. Very, very hard to work with his worship, um, and, more, and more in particular work with his partner who drives a lot of the issues. So I've tried and tried and tried. I mean, I love the man personally. I think he's done great things for the city, and he's been very good to me when I've had uh, a fatality in my family. Um, but it's time for him, him to go. Nobby Clark is running on the ticket, let's go in Vicargill, with eight others so far. These people are all independents. When they, when they get on council, I don't have any control over them, uh, not at all. We're in the city's brand new hotel, weeks away from opening. It's community-owned via a licensing trust and part of the rejuvenation of the inner city, including a new mall, partly funded by the council. We're on the cusp of something amazing here. We just need some really strong leadership. Cherie Carey is the head of Invercargill's Chamber of Commerce. Invercargill's doing great. The region as a whole is doing amazing. So 5.4% increase in GDP in the last quarter, which is um, higher than national average, higher than pre-COVID levels. But the council itself has had a rocky ride. The Department of Internal Affairs stepping in to investigate. Once um, we went through that internal review process, and realised how we needed to behave with each other, things have been fine, with one exception. Mayoral candidate Darren Ludlow is getting over COVID, but he said he's OK to talk to us. Hi, Darren. How are you doing? He's been on council since 1998. Having an understanding of what's gone on before isn't necessarily essential, but it's a hell of a help. And you're saying you have that? Oh, gosh, yes. Tim's done his dash, he's done well for, the, well for the city, but I think it is time for a change, but I'm not sure who. Well, he'll have plenty of contenders to choose from. In this city, it's more a case of who's not running for mayor. This is Rhea Bond, ex-New Zealand first. And guess what? Well, Fina, I'm actually going to put my hand up and run in the local body election for Mayor of Invercargill City. We've got so many great projects going on and in the framework of going forward that I really want to be part of that. Will, will you vote for Tim again? He's, he's put Invercargill on the map. He has, but his um, days might be over, I think. I just kissed the baby. That's what us politicians are here to do. After 28 years as mayor, we wanted to know why Sir Tim still wants the job. What would you say to the people who say, why don't you just retire now, you know? Yes, that is an argument, but there's another petty. Oh, that's not petty this time. Um, the. Uh, councillors who have missed out are um, 
determined now to take me to court for the defamation case. And again, it doesn't look like it's much, you know, it's only 180,000, but it's a lot when you're just a student coming up and running in a, um, a sort of creative level of uh, being a, um, a um, sort of creative type. Mayor Tim's court disputes and his potential legal bills are well known. Other mayoral candidates' campaign spiels are more traditional. Councillor Rebecca Munson. Apart from being young and energetic and hardworking, I have the skills to lead the change that our city is going through at the moment. Another councillor, Ian Pottinger, known locally as Rangi, also wants to be mayor. The old saying is if you want something done right, you, you do it yourself. I can honestly say without a shadow of a doubt, this place is, how can I say, it's awesome. I think it's going off, <laughs> really. Invercargill. Yeah. Downtown, the people of Invercargill are admiring the first wing of their brand new mall. And we're also talking mayors. I think we all need a celebrity to step up and uh, take over. Like another, ce another celebrity? Well, we know Tim. We know and people vote for Tim. And um, if you haven't got a good character to take over, who's... Why do, why do you need a celebrity, though? Well, what, don't you need someone who can just do the job well? Oh, definitely do the job, but, but you know, they have to be sort of... It's a popularity thing as well. Oh, 880 Yeah, Jay Marcus, welcome. Thanks for calling. Good evening. Marcus Lush, talkback host and first-term city councillor, politely declined to tell Q&A whether he was after the top job. The candidates are watching that space carefully. Well, the potential is like he bolted in in the by-election and if he stood again, uh, there could be that same support. Yet, um, sometimes when it gets to the top job, though, I think people probably take their time. The man in the top job has watched his majority slip every election. So that's a concern for you? No, it's, uh, it's democracy, you know, and you go up and down. It's a real roller coaster ride, and that's why I enjoy it so much. Unlike some other councils, Invercargill's water infrastructure is in very good nick. The council also has a good credit rating. The CEO and the executive team they've got in there now, it's absolutely incredible. So it's a really high functioning council. Um, so does it need a new mayor? Well, I think our leadership at the moment is coming from that leadership team and that CEO. They've been... They've Not been the mayor. Work, no, there's been workarounds, um, the mayor, in my opinion. The next mayor of Invercargill will be at the helm of a city reinventing itself. But with the rebuild and initiatives like green hydrogen on the horizon, there's just one problem. You know, we've got some big industry down here, um, but we just need people. We need everyone to shift to Invercargill. We have a mall now. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good to me. Fina Owen with that report. After the break on Q&A, if you've got money in housing, listen up. The Reserve Bank reckons it might not be such a good investment anymore. We'll tell you why. Hawkey my, welcome back. The CPI inflation figures this week were gulp-worthy indeed, 7.3%. And for the Reserve Bank, it means some tough choices in the months ahead as it considers its next move in taming inflation. The bank has a new chief economist. 
And Paul Conway reckons there are some big changes afoot in the New Zealand economy. What is it like to take a job like this in an economic moment like this? Yeah, um, well, exciting uh, on the one hand, a, a little bit terrifying uh, on the other hand. But, you know, Jack, the thing that's always guided me in terms of my job choices is where can I have the biggest positive impact in terms of improving the economic performance of New Zealand. Um, so, yeah, I've had to take a few brave pills and come to the conclusion that it's right here to Putia Matua, the Reserve Bank uh, of New Zealand, just given what we're facing into in terms of the macro economy. I want to get into some of the detail around the challenges that you and people in similar positions are facing at the moment. We'll start with housing, because you made an interesting speech last month in which you said housing may no longer be New Zealanders' go-to investment, no longer a one-way bet. Mm. What did you mean by that and why? Well, we meant that, uh, like, we put that speech out with a whole bunch of analytical notes underneath it, so it's really underpinned by a really good, strong research effort. Uh, and what we meant is, you know, house prices have tended or typically gone up in New Zealand over the last couple of three decades. There's been sort of wobbles around an upward trend. And we think, uh, and that, that's sort of been driven by things like rapid population growth. We've had a tax system that's favoured housing. And we've had this sort of long run decline in what we call neutral interest rates, which has happened globally. Uh, so that sort of pushed demand along in the housing market. But on the supply side, we've had restrictions on land availability. We've had a construction sector, uh, for whatever reason, tends to charge uh, pretty high prices. So we've had a situation of sort of persistent excess demand, which has pushed prices up uh, over that time period. Uh, and we just think looking across those things, population growth has sort of dropped off a cliff uh, over the pandemic and you know, it'll build back up, but I think that's going to be a, a long time coming and it's not going to go back to the sort of 2% uh, population growth rates a year that we had pre-COVID. The tax system uh, has been adjusted uh, here and there with the bright lines test and interest rate de deductibility. Uh, and also land use regulation is changing. So the Resource Management Act is getting reimagined, it's getting replaced, uh, and councils have been um, asked to remove overly restricted uh, restrictive zoning regulation. So you sort of add all that up. Um, and it's just not clear to us that the housing market is going to be that one-way bet uh, that it has been for Kiwis over the, over the last few decades, which is a huge change, uh, both in terms of the psyche of New Zealanders and in terms of how our economy uh, operates and functions. Does that mean, from the perspective of an investor, that you no longer seeing, see housing as being lucrative or you no longer see housing as being quite as lucrative? Um, I think... People will still make money out of the housing market. There's housing investors and landlords that are very good at what they do, and they'll continue you know, to get a return uh, out of the housing market. Um, but I just don't think it's going to be as sure a bet as, as what it's been for you know, some of the other people in there, perhaps. I should say, Jack, I'm, this is not financial advice no, 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 no. By, by any stretch of the imagination. No. I'm an economist, so I'm not talking about finance. I'm talking about broad trends. Yeah. Uh, in the market. I'm going to push back on a couple of those points you just raised. First of all, presuming there's no diversion from our regular electoral cycle, National will be back in government at some point and it is vowed to reverse those tax changes around uh, interest deductibility. This government, so far at least, has shown no great appetite for major tax reform and of course there's a lot of pressure to increase the migration flows. So how can you be confident that those factors won't 
stop being so significant? Well, I, I can't be. I'm, I'm an economist looking into the future, so I can't be very confident uh, at all. I'm kind of saying based on current uh, policy settings, you know, the changes that have been enacted uh, or put in place recently, you know, it's, it's, it's reasonable to think that perhaps there could be a, a turning point. Uh, in the housing market and, and of course if some of those fundamental drivers of the housing market change back in, in the other direction in future for whatever reason uh, then you know all, bet, all bets are off. I could well be wrong. I should say Jack you know I've been predicting a, 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 a correction in house prices for the best part of a decade now uh, and you know all through those long years of being wrong uh, I knew that one day uh, I would be right and I, I wonder <laughs> if, if now is the time uh, but it may well not be. It's interesting you say that because one of the you know one of the dynamics I've been really aware of throughout the pandemic is that all of the economic experts everywhere have been wrong in almost all of their forecasts. Yeah. And not just yeah. wrong, but incredibly yeah. wrong. Yeah. Why is that? Well, from my point of view, I well, well, A, it's been incredibly uncertain times. So yeah. uncertainty bars around any economist forecast are sort of extremely wide at the moment. Uh, and it's been all about economic volatility and a very difficult environment to make predictions. But, even, but secondly, I'd sort of push back a little bit and say, you know, economics, or at least the way I learnt economics, it's not so much about predicting the future. It isn't a crystal ball. It gives us frameworks for thinking about uh, how our world operates and in some certain circumstances it's possible to sort of use that insight uh, to push out into the future but it's very it's very difficult to get good data on what happened next year um, so all economists forecasts are real pinch of salt material even at the best of times and, and now is not the best of times for economic forecasting. So if this is true where else will people invest money? Mm. Well, this is an interesting uh, question. It's sort of, you know, the flip side of a housing market that sort of doesn't deliver, you know, large capital appreciations. You know, because, because housing, as well as being sort of critical for well-being, because everybody needs a house to, to live in, uh, is also the biggest investment that most New Zealanders will have. So if the housing market isn't the one, then, you know, where is it? Uh, in terms of making a good return and it's clearly very difficult to make a good return anywhere uh, at the moment with returns on equities or, or you know, interest rates have been, it's changing now obviously with rates going up but have uh, been low over the last few years. You know when, when I think about this question I sort of think you know New Zealanders need um, exciting um, you know high return or, or investment options that deliver a decent return so that we can save for retirement and if it's not going to be housing uh, then it has to be um, you know for me I end up with a productive New Zealand economy that is sort of delivering up other asset classes that do pay a decent uh, return for, for Kiwi saving up for their retirement so you know the flip side of a housing market that doesn't isn't going to deliver like it has previously is that we need to sort of build up those other uh, investment options you know as well as changing our psyche around how we think about investment so you know diversification isn't necessarily buying the house next door it's you know into another asset class um, sort of thing. What would New Zealand look like today if we'd done that sooner? If 20 or 30 years ago New mm. Zealanders had diversified their investments into other asset classes? Yeah, like it's not, I, I should say it's been perfectly rational for New Zealanders to invest in housing. Uh, from a, a sort of risk return uh, portfolio sort of perspective it's made sense. Uh, and people that have owned houses have uh, done, done well uh, out of it over recent decades. 
Um, so, so for me, it's, it's not so much that housing has sort of been responsible for where we are as an economy now, it's sort of been that lack of other uh, credible investment alternatives which sort of gets us into the conversation about New Zealand's uh, productivity potential. And yes, if we had had a more productive economy over the recent decades, we would have less poverty and deprivation in our economy. Wages uh, would be higher, and wages, of course, are related to well-being. So, so you know, a lot. It would be quite a different country uh, if we had have had sustained high productivity growth uh, over the last couple of decades, as opposed to uh, sort of ongoing uh, increases in house prices. I know you've given a lot of thought to New Zealand's productivity problem over the years, especially in some of your recent roles. What is the single biggest barrier to a more productive economy here? Yeah, uh, that's, that's, that, that, that's a tricky question to answer because there isn't one barrier to a more productive economy. Like New Zealand, we're a very particular economy. The fact that we're small and the fact that we're distant, you know, we call that sort of economic geography, uh, and that has an effect on New Zealand. So there's, there's no other economies like us uh, in New Zealand. So getting productivity right here, there's, there's policy uh, issues for the government to deal with, there's things for businesses uh, to think about in terms of uh, you know, technological adoption and the digital opportunity in front of New Zealand. Uh, there's things for workers uh, to think about in terms of keeping their skills fresh and sort of moving out of declining parts of the economy and into growing parts of the economy. Uh, so getting that uh, productivity equation right takes all of these forces to come together uh, in a beautiful way to, to create a stronger, uh, you know, more productive economy that delivers for all New Zealanders. Is it frustrating we haven't made more progress in this space? Y yes. <laughs> yes, I, I find it quite frustrating. I'm sort of, you know, mid-50s now as a New Zealand economist desperate to have a contribution. You know, something I can point at and say, I was, you know, what part of the cohort of people that made that happen. Oh, you know, there's, there's been progress. I don't yeah. think we should be too down on ourselves. Yeah. We're not a productivity bar basket case. Uh, we just haven't been at that sort of global technological uh, frontier where I think we can get to. And I should say, you know, I think there's so much change going on at the moment, and I think people's mindsets are... Uh, we're, we're more open to change than we've ever been. So I, I'm, I'm very uh, interested in the conversation about using the pandemic to sort of pivot uh, how we operate economically down here uh, into a stronger, better, faster economy. I know you're new to the role. I know you're new to the bank. I know you weren't involved with any of the decision-making when it came to the bank's response to the pandemic mm. in those early days. Mm. I also know you probably don't want to get in trouble with the boss. <laughs> the Reserve Bank took a really assertive position in responding to the, the early pressures in the pandemic. Mm. To what extent did that kitchen sink response affect the inflation position in which yeah. we find ourselves now? Like I, I think the way to look at that is what were we living through, that sort of early 2020 period. And if we cast our minds back, you know, it was... Economic Armageddon was sort of round, round the corner and there was no vaccine. This thing was going running rampant across the world. People were, fatality rates were, were very high. It was a very uh, desperate time. And I, I do think that uh, the fiscal response and the monetary policy response, you know, in a sense, they, they worked. Um, they averted a severe contraction or even a recession uh, over the last uh, couple of years. And, you know, we've had it pretty good uh, over the last uh, couple of years. You know, would have those have been the same decisions that would have been made in with, if we had perfect foresight? 
Um, you know, probably not. So that sort of opens up questions about, you know, what sort of new sources of data can we use? How can we sort of be better at sort of understanding uh, economic dynamics? Uh, but even though I wasn't here uh, at the bank uh, at the time, um, you know, I would have been advocating the same types of policy response through that 2020 uh, period. And, and I should say also the Reserve Bank of New Zealand was one of the first, if not the, the first bank within the OECD to reverse course and to start yeah. tightening. Uh, policy uh, from August last year, and we are totally one of the front runners globally now in terms of moving to combat uh, inflation in a pretty uncertain uh, period. Yeah, and, and just over the last couple of weeks, we've seen some alarming numbers out. I mean, inflation in the US above 9%, mm. uh, you know, Canada's uh, central bank raising 100, uh, 100 basis points mm. overnight. When you say probably not, about if we had our time again, yeah, would we have done everything the same? Probably not. Is there something in particular you're thinking of there? Or um, some... Like the Reserve Bank currently, you know, we're always keen to learn uh, from our actions. So we are in the process now of reviewing our monetary policy settings over the last five years. Uh, and we're approaching that with a very, you know, growth mindset. We totally want to learn uh, from the past so that we continue to, you know, improve, be the best, best central bank uh, going forward. Uh, and we will do that in a completely transparent way. So lessons uh, from the last uh, five years, we'll be publishing uh, papers uh, on that over the over the coming months and look forward to engaging with, uh, with people on it. How high do you think unemployment has to go to get us back to that 1% to 3% inflationary target? Well, currently, or at least in May, which was the last time we ran the numbers, uh, we were forecasting a, a gentle increase in unemployment. Um, but, you know, it's like there's more job vacancies in New Zealand currently than there are, um, you know, vacant uh, you know, people, people wanting, yeah, yeah wanting. Yeah. So, you know, there's a, a conversation in the international economics literature around, you know, can you have a, a sort of slowdown that sort of reduces those vacancies rather than getting uh, into the labour market? So, keeping the labour market strong uh, over the coming year or so is is really important uh, in terms of averting what we call a hard landing. And I think, you know, there's good reasons uh, in New Zealand to expect. Uh, certainly, our prediction in in May was that we can, you know, bring this economy in for a, a soft landing uh, and then sort of power away from then. So, so we're not uh, predicting a, um, a massive um, sort of bout of unemployment uh, in terms of getting inflation back in the box. But, you know, as I said earlier, inflation, economists' projections uh, will be, you know, we are just on an ongoing way sort of investigating these issues. But that's our best foot forward uh, at the moment, our best prediction of where we're at at the moment. I think, you know, I, I watch the labour market very closely. Uh, I think in some ways it's a more important uh, indicator of people's well-being and sort of financial hardship uh, than, than GDP. So we put a lot of... And it's part of our mandate, of course, part of our remit is around uh, supporting maximum sustainable uh, employment uh, in the economy. So we're very fixed on that as well as uh, inflation, obviously. Well, I think on, on behalf of everyone, we very much hope that that forecast proves to be correct and we do indeed have a soft landing. Thank you very much Me and too. good luck in the role. Thank you, Jack. Pleasure. That is the Reserve Bank's new Chief Economist, Paul Conway. Stay with us. Q&A's back after the break. Go mutu. That is Q&A for this week. From the Q&A team, thanks for watching. And mihi kia koutou i karere. Thanks for your feedback. Hey tērā wiki. We will see you next Sunday at 9am.
Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.